This episode is brought to you by The Dead Gods Do by Matt Gilbert. The end of the world is nigh, and the warrior priest Yazid Valerian is alone with the truth. The time of the Dead God's prophecy is at hand, and the world's fate hangs in the balance. His only hope is to lead his band of elite desert warriors to Nilos, the fabled city of sorcerers, in hopes to make new allies of ancient enemies. Karyana Tassinal was never trained to be Empress of Nilos, and she never wanted the job. Awil Amrath, respected physician and heir to his house, is close to war with his mother over his choice to marry a commoner. Yazid's arrival will force Karyana to confront her crippling lack of leadership skills and turn Awil down dark paths he never imagined. As cultures clash, Yazid must face the stark truth that he may well cause the very catastrophe he intended to prevent. The Dead Gods Do by Matt Gilbert Book 1 of the Eye of the Lion Saga Available now on Amazon Kindle eBook or read for free with Kindle Unlimited. Will faith and courage be enough to turn aside the coming apocalypse, or will the dead god find vengeance and turn the world to ash? The Dead Gods Do by Matt Gilbert. Download your copy today. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward you're listening to the grim tidings podcast book cover design panel with peter fugazato sean king and john anthony d giovanni It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. They say you can't judge a book by its cover, but we say you can judge an author by their cover. And as indie publishing becomes even more prolific, more and more authors are taking on the task of creating their own cover art. So today we thought we'd bring on an author and a couple cover artists to discuss all that's entailed with crafting that perfect book cover, collaborating as a team, and hopefully by the end of our chat, you'll have a new perspective not only on the importance of great cover art, but also have a few tools at your disposal if you're an author looking to make sure your cover is top-notch. Our first guest is a GTP alumni who was first featured all the way back on episode number 10 of the show in July of 2015, author of the Hounds of the North series, Into Darkness, Alien Infestation, and his latest, The Rise of the Fallen, Peter Fugazato. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Our next guest is by far the most previously mentioned cover designer discussed on the podcast. He's composed covers for multitudes of authors and publishers, including past guests, including Rob J. Hayes, Ben Galley, Dirk Ashton, and Ed Erdelak. Based out of Mississippi, it's award-winning graphic designer Sean King. Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for finally convincing me to come on. (laughs) We're delighted to have you. And rounding out our list of cover design overlords today, we have the new kid in town. He's illustrated beautiful cover art for past GTP guests, including Michael R. Fletcher and Dirk Ashton. Toronto-based freelance illustrator and concept artist John Anthony D. Giovanni, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. 
Absolutely. It's great to have you all on the show today, Peter. Great to have you back on the show. Sean, it's great to finally have you on after so long. And John, you've been popping up more and more in our social media stream, so it's great to have you on the show today as well. We've been wanting to discuss cover art comprehensively on the show for a while, and I don't think I can think of a better group of professionals to get on the show to delve into the topic. Now, Peter was on the show literally like a 100 episodes ago, and he actually won the Grimmy Award for Most Underrated Episodes, so... Congrats, kind of. Well, I guess so. <laughs> uh, it was a great episode. I just listened to it again, uh, preparing for our chat today. And if you haven't had a chance to check out Peter's previous chat on episode number 10 and 11, be sure to check out the show notes and we'll have a link to the episode there as well as uh, Amazon link as well if you wanted to buy Peter's books, which we highly recommend. Um, and in that episode, we discussed uh, martial arts, stick fighting, writing critique groups, Pinterest, novellas, and much, much more. So uh, much to delve into in that chat and much to delve into today. Now, Peter, this episode was actually your idea. And I think this is like the first actual pitched episode that somebody uh, delivered to us. We've been wanting to talk about covers for some time. And one day you just messaged me. Could you tell me a little bit about how you kind of came to this idea for this panel episode today? You know, with the previous books that I've published, I've, I've done the covers myself. And as I've been working sort of, because an indie publisher is, or indie writer is really not just a writer, but also what I see as an indie publisher. And as I've been um, moving along in my career as a writer, I wanted to um, sort of, you know, continue to just you know, bring more professionalism to, to the work that I'm producing, to the books that I'm putting out. And um, so for my latest book, The Rise of the Fallen, which is sort of a Southeast Asian fungal grimdark novel, I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, up the uh, the cover, you know, what the cover looked like. And so I was able to fortunately be able to talk to both Sean and Anthony and uh uh, you know, get them to work with me and put together a really nice cover. And so I wanted to, you know, be able to talk about the process of what it was like working with these guys, which was fantastic. Now, this is a, a full-length fantasy novel. You've written short stories, novellas, and fantasy novels. Now, do you have any, like, trunk novels or anything that you had to work through, or have you kind of published every major piece that you've put out? I have a lot of trunk novels, and just this past week, I was uh, in my workspace, which is a loft upstairs, and I was just throwing out a bunch of stuff that's old. Um, so, yeah, a, lo a, lot of, a lot of writing that's, that's been tossed, you know, part of the process. So, talking about Sean and Anthony, uh, I'm calling you the the Grim Dark Express. That's your tag team name. Um, you can take it or leave it. But I think when uh, author chooses design covers by you, it shows that they're pretty serious, uh, which is what Peter said earlier. Peter, do you do you find having a cover designed by the two of them gives you more legitimacy in the reading public's mind? Uh, they see a cover by these two, and then they'll say, "Oh shit, this is something I need to check out." You know that that's the initial sort of uh, impression that I've gotten when I when I did the cover reveal on the uh, the Facebook page. Tons of people commented on it and complimented it. And you know, it definitely is that way. You know, marketing a book is not just the book as it's written, but it's also the cover. And I knew with the book that I'd written, I wanted a a more professional, exciting cover that jumped out um, to really bring people to the book. Yeah, and I think this is a very very cool cover it's got a warrior running kind of running through a jungle it's very evocative and get your mind racing john anthony how do you how do you decide how you're going to design a piece of cover art based on a pitch or do you just kind of come up with it on your own and how do you um, develop it it varies i try to read the book as often as possible or as much of a book as i have time to read i find that's pretty important otherwise i look for as much input as i can from the author i, I like to get more. It actually makes my job easier to have uh, 
more information. You, you'd think maybe in some ways it would inhibit the process, but I think it's the opposite. I think having more storytelling cues to work with actually gives me a more inspired image. So I, I look for as much input as I can get. What did Peter tell you exactly? <laughs> Peter had very little input, actually, compared to a lot of other authors. Uh, oh, okay. But, but that said, I got to read the book. So when I get to read the book, it's, it's nice to have a balance, I think. Like, I usually like uh, to ask an author, you know, give me your idea of what you think you'd like to see. And I'll, I'll take that and, and I'll present you sketches based on that. And then I'll try and present you another, another few options based on what I think might work, uh, having read the book. So with the freedom that Peter gave me and having read the book, that worked out fairly well. So Michael Fletcher, did he tell you uh, for <laughs> Ghost of Tomorrow, can you draw me a skeleton cowboy with four arms? Yeah, that was exactly it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I read that book uh, as well. And, you know, and ask, again, that was exactly the same situation. You know, what, what do you think could work? And then I read it and I had some ideas and he said, well, what about this scene here? And yeah, that with that one, sometimes the sketches that I present, I, I think for in Peter's case, they varied quite a bit. Um, yeah, tremendously. So, yeah, there was a, uh, they were each very different. With Michael's for, for Ghosts of Tomorrow, for example, they're all skeleton cowboy samurai robot, but just mm. in kind of various compositions. So. It, again, every time, every author, it's different. Yeah, honestly, with the sketches that you provided, it they were all so good that I had a really hard time deciding which one to pick to move <laughs> forward with. I, I enjoyed those, yeah. For um, John Anthony, now you are an illustrator. So when you compose something, it's just a finished piece of art. It's not a composed cover with letters and everything, but a, a lush, illustrated piece of artwork, correct? Yes. Yeah, I, I try to stay with what I'm best at, leave the, leave the rest to the pros. Your wheelhouse. And then yeah. Sean King, you are more of the letter guy, but you compose full covers as well. But uh, lettering and um, interior design and graphic design is more your forte. I think more, more of my work is coming from uh, just design and typography. I have done art, but it's more like photo manipulation type, so like photo art. But I can do full graphic design covers, uh, the Ragnarok publication covers, which are unfortunately unavailable now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, going back to the original question, uh, I got sidetracked there. Yeah, typography and design more so than anything else. And then as the Grimdark Express, you and John have uh, collaborated multiple times before, <laughs> correct? Uh, yes. And uh, shout out to Michael Fletcher for actually setting us up. Yeah, he started the whole thing. Yeah. So uh, he's like your he's like your manager, sort of like he's not your, even Jim, Jim Cornette. <laughs> so uh, just, and it's manager that doesn't get paid. Uh, <laughs> well, he's kind of an author that doesn't get paid either. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then Sean King, when you prepare to do a cover design, uh, what is your approach? Do you try to read as much as the book as possible or uh, what What do you need in order to start composing a cover? Well, I'm such a slow ass reader that there's no way I could read a book unless the author's willing to wait like months for me to bring <laughs> something back around. So if they do, they can give me like an excerpt or something. But mostly like if I'm dealing if me and John are working together, I just get his art and base it off of that pretty much. I know like the the gist of what the story's about, but I mostly make it fit with his artwork. So I had this question before for for other people, and I can never really get a straight answer from anyone. 
and this is kind of like a mysterious thing for me, but as far as fonts, like what are some good fonts? Because every time I ask, like people are like, oh, you can use, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. but you never get really a clear answer. Like what are some good like typographical fonts that are always reliable? Because you have a very distinct kind of style, I think, Sean. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, millions of fonts, but uh Unlike some of the other indie covers, I like to mix different fonts together. So kind of make each cover more unique than all the others that are out there. So, yeah, I can't really give you a firm answer on that because I'm kind of designing mix and mix and match different pieces of different fonts and make something. Papyrus or Comic Sans? (laughs) No, no, no. <laughs> Everyone keeps telling me use virus. Comic Sans. They're like, use Comic Sans, you'll get tons of sales. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yes, Philip, do that. <laughs> There's probably a context where Comic Sans could work. There's got to be. It's all, it's all context, right, Sean? <laughs> I think uh, there's a there's a different font that I hate even more, and it's a sensual. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> Like every urban or paranormal indie book, it has since was the title. It's like you can't even tell them apart. Like survival it's- handbooks. <laughs> <laughs> Sean and John Anthony, I'm curious how both of you got started in composing genre covers. John Anthony, how did you get started composing uh, fantasy cover illustrations? Well, specifically, doing fantasy cover illustrations was, uh, you know, Mike Fletcher asking me if I could do the Mirror's Truth cover for a sequel to uh, Beyond Redemption. So that was specifically how I got started with that. Now, preparing for that, I've been preparing for that a lot longer so that's, you know, training with illustrators and always being interested in that field. And I mean, partly, too, it's because fantasy and, and science fiction is primarily the place where an illustrator can work in covers because you, you don't see as many illustrated covers in other genres. They exist, but not as commonly, I think. And then Sean King, how did you get uh, started in genre cover composition? Well, I always wanted to work in the book industry since I started really reading and becoming a fan from uh, R.A. Salvatore. And so I kept trying. I didn't actually get into design until college. I was going to want to do game design, but the local college didn't offer that. So I went for the next best thing, graphic design, knew nothing about it. I got in, started to enjoy it. And so it's like, I would really like to get into the book industry. And I don't know what year it was, but my first book cover finally came along. And it was a uh, men's grooming book. (laughs) 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 But I mean, I did good on it. And then uh, Mark Lawrence had his contest to design a poster. And so I did that. And then Joe Martin from Ragnarok noticed it, uh, reached out to me and brought me on and pretty much the rest is history. And how would you say, how many covers do you think you've composed since then, Sean? Uh, Rough estimate. uh, About 50 or 60. I mean, it's only been a few years. Now, Sean and John, would you say that this cover or or graphic design kind of industry, is there a lot of people out there trying to do it? Is it like a competitive industry, would you say? I don't think it's very competitive. And because more and more people think that they uh, can do it themselves, so they don't really seek out any help. Just as an illustrator in general, there's it's competitive. It's a competition to just to be. It's tricky because, you know, you can be really skilled or really unique or both. And, and all of those things will work for you in different ways. So, yeah, the competition is there, but you kind of fall into niches, I think. Peter, what made you decide to go with these two guys? Did you Was it a particular cover that you saw that, that made you feel like, oh, shit, I need to get these guys 
working on my next book cover or is it just uh, the accumulation of their work that you've seen that that just their reputation as being good cover designers and uh, a lot of good attention that several other authors have gotten, including Michael Fletcher and Dirk Ashton and some others. Michael Fletcher. Everything go- comes back to Michael Fletcher. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that was sort of the initial. Don't tell him that. <laughs> uh, we need we need to build his ego up even more. <laughs> so it it started with that. I think really. I mean, I did look around at a bunch of other folks, but then I saw that these two guys worked really well together, and that's what I wanted. Um, I really liked the work that uh you know all the illustrations that uh that uh, John Anthony was doing, and I also looked at what Sean was doing in terms of uniqueness of of what he's doing with the, with the uh, the text and and the uh, the typography and and how he made it different for each of the authors and i really liked it and i I wanted basically what i saw is again like you're talking a team that could work together and and produce something for me and i knew they could produce a product and uh yeah i love it it's just exciting yeah and i think you know that's that's part of it is like we're talking about like indie authors a, a lot of them will do their own covers and then there's kind of that step up to the next level and these guys are that step up to the next level and you know if i look at it from the martial arts context which i'm familiar with it's kind of the difference between a white belt and a black belt they kind of sometimes appear to be doing the same thing but when you actually really look at what they're doing it's just on a whole different level and you know that's what it, i really like about the work that they've done it's just it's just incredible it just pops um just you know fantastic like sean i i just want to compliment you again on what you did with the uh the typography of where you get that, that like the fungal element just going through all the text just it's just crazy i love it so, <laughs> thanks man. i wanted to compliment you as well by the way <laughs> i had a chance to uh but <laughs> i really too. yeah i love the work on that too sean thanks and i have yeah. to say and uh that's one of the favorite covers i've worked on i'm not just blowing smoke up your ass <laughs> Like, John, man, your art just, I think it brings out the best in my abilities. That's what I think we we really mesh together. Peter mentioned Black Belt, and and I think this cover is a Black Belt cover. I don't don't think there's any, I don't think it can get much better uh, than the illustration and the composition that you guys put together. And Peter, when I look through your catalog of covers, you are leveling up. Even your first cover is good, but uh, you can tell through this evolution and then picking up uh, the Grim Dark Express to compose this cover, you have definitely leveled up. And then uh, folks can go to the uh, Amazon link in the show notes, uh, take a look at the book cover on Amazon and uh, see the lush greenery and, and lettering and everything there. This is just a really well-composed cover. Um, so let's talk a little bit about numbers because uh, budget is definitely something to consider when indie authors are looking to uh, spend some coin to put a cover together. So, Peter, can we talk a little bit about um, what you budgeted to put something like this together, kind of to give other authors a a general idea of what they can look for uh, when they're going to invest in something like a cool cover? Because really, Peter, at the end of the day, wouldn't you say a a cool cover is detrimental to the income that you're going to make for your book? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, it's like as you move along in, in growing as an author, you want to invest in basically the end product. And, you know, I, I realized, you know, I, I hadn't done, you know, my covers previously were all Shutterstock images that I basically just stuck into Photoshop and, and, and toyed around with. And I knew this time I wanted to put some money into it. So, you know, the budget was, uh, you know, just under a thousand dollars for the production of, of, you know, of the, uh, the cover and, and some other stuff related to it. 
Have you noticed any sales numbers? Maybe it's too early. It, right it's, now. Yeah, it's, it's too early to tell just because the book has just been released. You know, again, I'm, I'm in this for sort of long term, see where things go. And I, I believe in the cover. I believe in the book. And knowing that it's there, it's going to draw eyes to it. And then once people get into it, you know, it'll, it'll be the, the, the slow burn, hopefully. But the other thing for me is also I'm really proud of this book. And I wanted a cover that matched the quality of, the, of, of what I really believe this story was in terms of, of where I'm moving. So for me, it was an important investment in in my growth as a writer, and uh, and, and also just pr- producing something that you know I look back at and say this this cover is just absolutely perfect for what the story is, and I'm super proud of it. So you know, long term investment, and um, yeah, happy to have made it. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. I would get that cover like uh, poster sized and put it up on my wall, and uh, it's pretty pretty fantastic. Now this is a uh, book one of the Rotting Empire series. What are your plans in store for this uh, series that you have, Peter? Well, I, I've plotted out a second book in the series, um, but that's a little bit on the back burner right now. I'm also working on a horror novel that's in a second draft, and it's sort of uh, four guys uh, head up to a lake to spread the ashes of their old high school friend who died, and then a, a, a bloody woman shows up at their cabin door, and, and all hell ensues. And then I'm also working on um, a science fiction book, which is probably best described as a Blade Runner meets ex-zombies. Well, it seems like Sean and John Anthony are more known for being grimdark related. Uh, I, I guess you guys have done other genres as well but when you get approached by a grimdark author does that make you feel like oh we're known as the grimdark guys now we're the we're the grimdark cover guys is that like a good moniker to have do you think um well i wouldn't really i don't really think of it like that though because i mean i've done stuff for every not every genre but different types of genres so Mm. uh it's only really been a few of the grimdark people, so I wouldn't really categorize us as only grimdark people now, okay. even though we are the grimdark express. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of illustration, the the kind of the grimdark readers writers community has been has been really positive response to my work. So it has it has gone that way. I mean, I'm I'm probably less diverse with covers than Sean is. I've done a lot more grimdark, but that said, I, I do other work in in other. Not even books, but other industries and, and other other genres. So your cover for uh, your cover art for uh, Daryl Drake, I wouldn't consider that grimdark. Yeah, that yeah, beautiful. that's interesting. That's true. Yeah, it's it's always nice when when I can do something a, a little bit more poetic. Or I mean, there's there's poetry and and grimdark violence as well. I guess you could say. So you guys are fans of grimdark, obviously. What is your opinion from the standpoint of? not as authors, but as uh, artists that are working in the genre. Yeah. I mean, as a reader, I, I actually, until <laughs> Michael Fletcher uh, added me to a grimdark readers and writers group, I, I didn't know what grimdark was. I mean, I'd enjoyed books that I've learned are now in the grimdark genre, but I, I didn't know that it was called that even. So I've, I've always been into that. You know, I, I was in a Warhammer and, and Warhammer 40 K's uh, when I was younger and when I had more time. And uh, so, I mean, I've always I've always been interested in the genre as a reader, um, as an artist. I think I've been drawn to to darker material as well. And I mean, I think kind of looking over my own work and, and my portfolio, just as in terms of physical brightness, most of the work is fairly dark with high contrast. But um, yeah, you know, dark fantasy has always kind of been something I've been interested in visually. What's the grimmest cover you've worked on? Do you think the, the oh. evokes the grimmest feeling? Probably, probably Mirror's Truth is, is pretty grimy, I think. 
I think I can answer that for John. It's uh, one that I'm working on right now. It's uh, for Book Nest. Uh, we have oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. Coming out. What uh, do you that, think of that one? <laughs> uh, that's pretty badass, man. All right, cool, man. <laughs> I'm currently working on that, sending it back and forth with uh, Petros. So y'all get to see that pretty soon. Yeah, we've talked about that a few times on the show. That's uh, Art of War. Art of War. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah. Benefit Anthology from the good folks at booknest.eu. Fantastic. And then, Peter, uh, so you were on the show basically two years ago. And uh, so you've been in this indie scene now for three years uh, just about, I think November of 2014 is when you first published Witch of the Sands. So here we are three years later from your retrospective of being on the kind of indie slash hybrid uh, kind of scene. What have you kind of learned in your progress in your career so far uh, that you think you could impart to maybe an indie author just starting out? I think the the biggest thing I've learned is just to do it if you're having fun. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, don't do it. Don't worry about getting from A to B, but be more concerned with that point between A and B. It's really about the process. Um, and that, that's just kind of life thing. But the other thing that I think is really important is what I've found is it's just the incredible um, people that I've met along the way. And that, that's really one of the, the highlights of, of the whole writing journey for me from, from, from these two guys in terms of you know, artists that I'm able to work with, talking to you guys on the podcast, other authors I talk with, readers who I talk with. Um, you know, Because it, it's hard as a writer because you're always just writing by yourself. So it's always great to have a community of folks um, that you can engage with and talk to. So I'm not sure if those are those are lessons to be learned or wisdom to be imparted, but that, that's what I've really valued from, from the, th- the past three years is really getting to know a bunch of people and just having fun with what I'm doing. John, Anthony, and Sean, I wanted to just pick your brain for a second too. When it comes to indie authors kind of composing covers um, and going into business for themselves, so to speak, and wanting just to slap something together, what are kind of some of the biggest mistakes that you see authors making when they're composing their own covers? Oh, uh, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Well, it's weird because, like, I mean, yeah, everybody has, you know, art is in the eye of the beholder and type deal. They think they're doing a wonderful job. (laughs) Nobody will be honest with them and tell them that it's shit. And I think that's why they continue to do it. And that plus the fact that they don't have to pay for anything. Oh, man. It, it's hard because I'm fairly ruthless on myself when it comes to quality. And so I can I can be pretty ruthless on everyone else, too. It might not be fair, uh, but mistakes. It's it's interesting, too, with illustration, because I'm learning that there, there are you know, degrees of quality that people who aren't illustrators could sometimes don't perceive the same way I do. Uh, which is which is interesting to me. Uh, and then I'll see covers that maybe I'm not as fond of, but they could do really well. So I'm still trying to figure out what it is that that uh, everyone wants to see, you know, so I, I'm not exactly sure what the mistakes are. I, I know a few things that work and I try to hold on to those and, and go from there. So then switching from, from mistakes, then what are maybe two or three good traits of a popping uh, genre cover? Well, I mean, I think I think like... Uh, more often than not, something dynamic is, is going to be something with something that has action or movement or even the suggestion of movement in, in a composition. I th- that's always something I'm going for. You know, even if it's a piece with a character standing still or something, I want the composition to be swirling to some degree. And it's kind of an ambiguous way to describe it, but that's that's how I'm approaching it. So so some kind of movement or action that, that makes you feel like if you look away, you're going to miss the moment. 
And also, uh, I think for covers, you know, as as poetic as you want them to be sometimes, that can work. I think you have to be really, really good and really careful. But something that's uh, really strong graphically, I think, is going to work well. Because now, I mean, the other thing to consider that I'm always considering, and, and I go over this with authors, is when, when we're looking at the covers, we're talking about an Amazon thumbnail. And that's what's grabbing your eye for the most part or something like that, right? Like it has to work mm-hmm. at that small on a, on a computer to monitor. So if it doesn't work that small, then, you know, it's it's kind of a gamble. Right. Yeah, as far as uh, the design aspect, um, pay attention to your type. Uh, don't just slap something on there. There's even, I won't name names, but like even a big publisher like every book is the same damn font and yeah, they're going to sell because they're a big publisher and they've got some kick-ass illustration, but it's the same fucking font and I'm not going to buy it. I'm tired of it. So be creative with your type and your design. I mean, that's your cover is your main marketing item. Like you want it to look good. You want it to reflect what is inside it. I don't know if I'm getting off track, but I see plenty of people with shitty covers be like, well, I would like for the uh, story to speak for itself. It's like, yeah, the story will speak for itself, but the people have to get past the cover to get to the story. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of visual competition. Right. Unless you're giving the book away for somebody to read it, they're not going to get past the cover. So then your story can't speak for itself. Why do so many covers have torsos on them? You mean like the faces? <laughs> yeah, it's always like someone's torso. It's either like a bear torso. <laughs> <laughs> not a bear like the animal like that, would be cool. that would be cool though, a bear torso what are you reading phil <laughs> like a lot of covers it's just like i'm not talking about fantasy covers but just like covers in general i i, I guess it tends to be more erotica stuff that i, that I <laughs> all see. right now now we know what you're reading ah, harlequin <laughs> romances and- <laughs> But there's a lot of that, like, even if I just go on Amazon and I don't, I don't actually read stuff on that, but (laughs) it it comes up a lot. It's got to be some deep psychological archetype or something that people are just automatically not even thinking about it and they're just putting it on there. Also, I think um, it's all of that one genre and it's saturating Amazon. So that's why you see it more often. And it's probably something easy to do because they can just grab stock photos, slap it on there and be done with it. Kevin Sorbo looking guy. Yeah, because speaking of photos, the stock photo sites are also saturated with that type of imagery. So Mm. it's just something easy to do and it seems to work for the market. So why not do it? What would you consider the bare torso of the fantasy art (laughs) community? There's a few of them, I think. Oh, the uh, scantily clad women warriors. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's tricky to say it without condemning myself, I think. Because, <laughs> you, I mean, you, you want to touch on them, I think, to some degree so that people know what they're because people are looking for something they're familiar with. Right. So you want to kind of you want to nod to the the uh, cliches, but you don't want to become a cliche, I think. So. It's, mm. uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, night, tired night looking off in the distance is a. Uh, a common one but you i guess when i when i get that because i liked everyone wants to paint it a, a knight who's just finished a battle and he's looking off dramatically mm-hmm. but uh i think that comes up a lot so you're trying to look for something that's a little bit different that you can add to it or or get the moment just very specific so it feels unique right you actually did that with um uh, murray yeah yeah that's what that's what i was thinking too is because that's the thing that i'm like all right well how can i do that in a way that's gonna yeah feel feel unique because i really you know 
I, every cover is a, a bit of a wrestling match because yeah. I, I feel like I got to get past those cliches because that's the first thing that comes to mind is 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 all these cliched ideas and, and I have to work them out on paper until I'm like fed up with it. And once I'm completely done, I you know, I feel like I can't paint. I've got no ideas. I, I, you know, what am I going to do? Then I come up with something. So if I asked you guys to make me a cover with a torso on it, would you do it for me? It's just like a torso. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it would be cool, man. It would be cool. It'd be the coolest torso. It'd be different. Ever seen. It'd be different. It would be the same, but different. <laughs> the light would fall differently, or people would be like, "That's a nice torso." It's <laughs> a nice nipple right there. That nipple. So the light highlights. The nipple shadow falls just right. <laughs> you got to get that nipple shadow right. Peter, could you tell us about the book a little bit? Like, uh, who is that character on the cover that's running? Because we haven't talked about that. Yeah, the the the, uh, the character on the cover is the main character. It, it's Maja. She's essentially a, a former royal bodyguard who got exiled for not preventing an assassination. And the story follows her as she basically, in the beginning of the story, she's a fungal pirate, which means she's a pirate that basically raids different islands in this tropical kingdom to get their fungal drugs and resell them. And one time when she's out on a raid on an island, she ends up encountering one of her old mentors who's dying, and he charges her with bringing a young monk back to the capital. And the monk is not quite who he seems and holds secrets that's basically going to turn the uh, the empire on its head. It was a story with a you know, really strong female protagonist, which is what I wanted to write. I wanted to write it in a Southeast Asian world because I, I traveled in Southeast Asia for about eight months. And I love the, the feel of it, the jungles, the, the tropical beaches, the culture, and wanted to bring all those into the story. So is this the first official jungle grimdark? Yeah, uh, that I've grim, written, yes. Grim jungle? <laughs> what will we call this? Grim jungle? Uh, grim fungal. Grim fungal? Oh, I like that. Sounds like a toe, toe problem. <laughs> that's, a, that's a way to sell the book. <laughs> <laughs> Should have that looked at. <sighs> All right. Well, I think we've had uh, quite a lively uh, conversation here about composing covers. Now, uh, Sean King and John Anthony, uh, I presume, are you both taking on new clients? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Any time. Okay. I mean, I'll let people know when I'm available, but anybody that wants to reach out, I'm here. And uh, Sean King, what's your website in case uh, an author wants to maybe ping you about uh, helping with uh, the cover? It's stkcreations, with a K, dot com. Okay, very good. And then, John Anthony, uh, give us your website and where folks can track you down in case they want to commission you for an illustration. Yeah, it's www.jadillustrated.com, J-A-D Illustrated. Dot com is the website. Dot com. Excellent. Dot com, yeah. All right. And so if authors are looking to get a cover composed, a top-notch black belt poppin' cover from the Grimdark Express, they are available now at your disposal for your book cover needs. So be sure to track them down. You guys are on Facebook and Twitter uh, as well, too. So I presume folks can track you down there. And then um, you're on Art Station as well, mm-hmm. John Anthony. So folks want to check out. Uh, so is Sean, yeah. So is Sean. Okay. I didn't know Sean was on. Uh, yeah. Okay. Very good. Peter, it was great to catch up with you again. I'm sure in 100 more episodes, we'll get you back on. But uh, no, I think we'll come in maybe maybe in six months or so. We'll uh, check in with you and see the results that fared from your upgraded black belt cover art. And we'll see uh, what you're writing and maybe check in with you then and uh, see how things are going. Sean King, it was uh, great to finally get you on the show after I think you've been mentioned probably like 60 times on the program before, <laughs> just from everybody seeing your your work before. So great to have you on and best of luck to you and all of your composition. And then uh, John Anthony, great to have you on as well. New guy. 
We love your uh, beautiful illustrations. Great to have you on. And to each of you, thanks so much for taking the time to come on to talk about cover art today. Best of luck to you and to all the authors listening. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to uh, the websites for everybody that was on the show today. And if you want to compose a quality cover, the Grimdark Express is definitely the tag team you should be looking for. And then Philip Overby, uh, you too have uh, recently uh, composed a, a cover as well, right? Yes, I have. It's top secret information. But you two are, so, you two are, are uh, leveling up as far as your cover I, composition. I have leveled up. I have leveled up to a level six necromancer. That's <laughs> it's my, a, my it's level a torso, now. isn't it? It's a torso. It's a, it's, torso. A big, it's a big ass torso. It's a big disembodied bloody torso. That's my book cover. With a shadowy nipple. With, yeah. a big, with a, one big shadowy Just nipple one. in the middle. Just one. It's called Cyclops Nipple. <laughs> now, this has been by far the most time we've said nipple on one episode. You're welcome. I'm excited. Well, we, need to, we need to up our nipple counter more. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. Available online at thegrimtidingspodcast.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction, and for daily updates on all things Grimdark, be sure to drop by our Facebook group at GrimDarkFiction Readers and Writers. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. If you love the authors you've heard on the Grim Tidings podcast, then you'll love Grimdark Magazine. Interviews, articles, reviews, and the premier magazine for Grimdark fiction by authors such as Mark Lawrence, R. Scott Baker, Deborah Wolf, and more. Get knee-deep in grit. Log on to GrimdarkMagazine.com. I'm reading from The Rise of the Fallen, and this is the prologue, so starting off in the beginning. And the girl asked the torturer the same. The queen did not turn to her man's gravelly voice. She did not want to see the smile playing across Bima's scarred face or what he had done at her command. Instead, the queen lingered on the balcony of the palace. Despite the slight breeze that she sought, the late afternoon heat caused her golden sarong to cling tightly to her ribs and the back of her legs. She squeezed her hands on the teak railing to hide the trembling that threatened to overcome her body. The edge of the sky tumbled a dark gray the front of the tropical storm rising like a wall. Shafts of light broke through, the, causing the rice fields to glow such a bright green that she was forced to squint against the blinding sky. At the far ends of the valley, the jungle tangled dark and impenetrable. Chaos kept at bay, but always threatening. Her world had become an endless mix of darkness and light, the two inseparable. She inhaled deeply, trying to calm herself. She was the darkness, and the light rarely shone through. How had she become this way? Mixed with the sweet rot of the jungle, she smelled the salt of the sea. The scent evoked a memory of the day she too had arrived in Yavasa as a foreigner. A bridal tribute. But she repressed that feeling. Hiding her fears, hiding her memories. How was it that the most powerful woman in the empire was forced to hide her true feelings? Maybe that's where the darkness was born. The queen turned to Bima, where he stood with the girl, the choke cord already furrowing the flesh of her neck. He did smile behind his scarred cheeks, but the queen's attention was drawn to the boy crumpled on the floor. Bima's cord had left a single, long, red mark around the boy's pale throat.
His fur-lined cloak, a ridiculous garment in this heat, was soaked dark with his blood from the deep cuts and clever fillets that had made the boy talk, reveal the truth about the foreigners. The queen looked at the girl, her skin pale like that of a ghost, her braided hair the color of bone. Such a contrast to the mahogany skin of Bima. Before the arrival of the foreigners from the north, the queen had thought her own skin light-colored, but now she realized how mistaken she had been. Despite being a child, maybe a dozen years old, the girl was nearly as tall as Bima, her shoulders broad, those of a breed of fighters, these white demons from the fabled lands far to the north. They had drifted on their dragon ship after a month of misery on the Sea of Sorrows, a score of swaggering men, thick-bearded, with wicked axes and tunics of metal chain. An army of such men could have ruled the archipelago. But the foreign warriors had fled. The god-emperors assembled thousands had made the northerners realize that they had made a grave mistake landing their lone vessel. No easy pillaging in the empire of Yavasa. The queen took a few steps across the balcony, returning to the cool shade of her chambers. The girl glared at her. The queen could see the anger in her eyes. But there was also something else, a deep sadness, one that the queen recognized. The despair of being left behind. The queen again fought back a rising emotion. Your name, girl. Bima's renewed pressing of his bloody knife against the girl's ribs loosened her tongue. I'm Maja. Her lips returned to their pursed state, petulant look that made it seem as if any moment the girl would smile or maybe unleash a war cry. Are the things your friend told us true? Maja's gaze, her eyes the color of a calm, shallow sea, did not turn from the queen. He was not my friend. The queen smiled. The girl had spirit. Are you the cook's helper, too? Now Maja broke her stare, glancing for a moment to look out over the jungle in the direction of the coast. When she looked again at the queen, her eyes were moist. My father is the captain of the ship. No king's daughter, then. The jarl gave me no choice. Did he even bring his daughter? She hid below the decks. And your father let the jarl do this. He willingly left you here as a hostage, allowed the jarl to present you falsely as his daughter, knowing that lies only lead to death. He did not fight for you. Maja blinked. My father left me here too, said the queen, long ago. But I am the daughter of a king. I was no false gift. He'll come back for me, my father, Maja suddenly said, stepping forward. Bima yanked on the choke cord and she dropped to her knees. The queen closed her eyes. Drops of rain pattered and hissed on the palm thatch roof. A breeze wafted from the balcony, the cool air touching the queen's ankles below the hem of her sarong. The storm had arrived, darkness descending on the land. If only the rains could wash away the years of blood. Bima's rattling voice broke the calm. Your pleasure? The queen opened her eyes to Maja, tight in Bima's arms. The choke cord bit into her neck, the flesh rising on either side of the leather. The knife had drawn a trickle of blood from the girl's cheek, bright red against the unnaturally pale skin. It would be easy for the queen to flick her fingers and then turn back to the expanse of the kingdom outside her balcony. She could revel in the gilded turrets, the carefully tended rice paddies, the white banners snapping against the iron-smeared clouds. The world would go on as it had for decades under the beneficent rule of the god-emperor. Order returned, chaos strangled. Before the fury of the storm smothered the palace, the bodies of the boy and the girl would be gone. Of course, the bloodstains would be another thing. The servants would work for days on the wooden floor, 
bent with fungal sponges and brushes and buckets of water, and as hard as they would try, the stains would never completely disappear. The queen turned her hands over and stared at her palms. Shadows slithered across her skin. She had scrubbed them. Every day she washed them in near-boiling water, soaked them in lime juice, and scraped the skin with lava stone. But as hard as she tried, the blood stains always hid in the creases, leaping in the changing light, liquid, elusive, not always visible, but itching deep beneath her skin. He won't come back, said the queen. Your father won't return for you. He will, spittle flew from the girl's pale lips. We are not like you, murderers. Return her to her chambers. Bima hesitated, blinking. The queen felt tension rising in her hands. She is mine now. Her life is mine and she will serve me. She's dangerous, a white foreign devil, a threat to Yavasa, hissed Bima. That is why I am keeping her. Maja struggled and almost broke free of Bima's grasp, but he tightened the cord until she spasmed into unconsciousness, and then he dragged her to the doorway, where several soldiers in the white fungal armor of the god emperor picked her up. The rain suddenly sheeted from the sky, blurring the distances. The surface of the river foamed white. The queen peered at the jungle-covered hills and wondered how far the foreigners had gotten. Did Duke Berenchidi permit them to sail out of the mouth of the river and into the bay where his ships waited? Or had he grounded them on the beach at the foot of the Eye of the East? She opened her palms. The shadows retreated to the creases in her flesh. Maja's father would not return for her. The Jarl's daughter would never set foot on the icy shores of the land of the north. None of the foreigners would. They would never reach the Sea of Sorrows. If they were not taken into the dungeon yet, they would soon be dragged down those steps the duke deciding which of the pincers, needles, and knives would reveal the secrets of the fiends from the north. Duke Burnchidi enjoyed it all too much. The queen needed to talk to the god emperor about the duke. He was becoming increasingly bold in his displays of power lately. Better to keep him close, and his son even closer. Chaos had no place in Yavasa. But later, right now her palms were itching, and she needed to sit down with a pumice stone. Maybe the fresh rain would wash the shadows away.